We consume a lot of stuff. Sometimes we use that stuff for a few seconds or minutes, like a paper coffee cup or a plastic water bottle. Around the world, every minute, over 1 million plastic bottles are sold, and 91% of those aren't recycled. Maybe we use that stuff for a few months or a couple of years, like a phone or a hairdryer. But when our stuff breaks, we usually go out and get a replacement. Sometimes we own stuff for a long time, but it doesn't really get used much. For example, did you know that the average drill is supposedly used for only 10 minutes in its entire lifetime? And the average car is parked 95% of the time. The way we consume has got to change if we want a habitable world for our future. So I wanted to talk to some experts in waste reduction to learn more about how we can shift both our consumption and waste habits. Well, I'm Christina Seidel. I'm the executive director of the Recycling Council of Alberta, as well as an independent uh, waste reduction consultant. My name is Lindsay Seidel-Wassener, and I am a project team lead with Sonavera, the independent consulting firm that Christina was mentioning that she's the president of. And we work on solid waste reduction plans, really helping municipalities, mainly in Alberta, to reduce the amount of waste going to landfill. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. Today, I'm talking to Christina and Lindsay about waste, consumption, and the circular economy. Could you describe for those folks that don't know anything about a circular, the circular economy concept, um, what is it? Circular economy is, is really, it's a new lexicon. It has not been used for really long, but it is really gaining momentum and gaining popularity. And that's one of the key things is how do we even define it? So mm. everybody thinks when they hear circular economy, because of the word circular, they think it's about recycling. And it is not about recycling. It is about a much higher level systemic change where we do a better job of recognizing the value of resources and trying to keep resources at their highest level in terms of use and value for the longest period of time. And that can be through a number of different mechanisms. Certainly recycling is one of them, but there's a lot more kind of social shifts that are key to this. Things like the sharing economy, where we actually share materials more. The sharing economy is based off shared access to goods and services. Think of car share programs like Car2Go or shared bikes and scooters or lending libraries. The sharing economy is usually facilitated with online platforms or apps that allow people to connect and share with others. It's a rapidly growing sector of the economy. Making materials have more longevity, making products have more longevity so that we get rid of concepts like planned obsolescence, which are just nonsensical. If you own a phone or computer, you've likely experienced planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence is when manufacturers deliberately design products to fail prematurely or become out of date, typically to sell new or upgraded products in the future. It's a way to ensure ongoing sales and revenue for those companies. And some manufacturers also restrict consumers' ability to repair their products. So those are the types of things that are also embedded within circular economy that a lot of people don't necessarily think of right up front, but they are key to the system. So it's a systemic 
um, change as opposed to just an end of pipe change. So could you describe what that would mean for an individual family uh, today, if anything? Um, and then I know you're working at the national level on this issue. And, and can you maybe describe some of the efforts that are happening uh, at the Canadian level? Um, well, in, in terms of the in terms of individuals and families, it really is about a, a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of recognizing the value of resources. Mm. So the idea of trying to get away from just wanting to buy the cheapest thing possible, if you need something, to look at factors like longevity, repairability, um, and maybe even to look at, do we need to own all this stuff or can we yeah. just have a system where we share things? Um, as opposed mm -hmm. to such a good example of that is the tool libraries. Mm -hmm. um, tool libraries are there. They're in place now. Oh, my God, that, that's just this took uh, the country by storm. I don't think there's a major city that doesn't have a tool library now. And you couldn't say that 10 years ago. So mm -hmm. people are starting to recognize that there's a lot of things that they don't need to have their own tool or camping equipment or games or you know, the list is extensive, that instead of having their own in their basement, they can just go down to the corner to the tool library and actually borrow that whatever they need, and then they bring it back. And then it has so much more value um, and, and makes much better use of those resources. So that, that I think, is, is really how it's, it's being open to those type of opportunities and that paradigm shift of recognizing that we need to look at those options. It sounds like at, at a pretty fundamental level, um, it requires this mindset shift, particularly around ownership. Is that fair to, 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 to re-examine um, yeah, what it means to own or not own um, and to uh, kind of that then extends into particular actions for, from the individual level, let's say, to, to keep it there. Um, is, that, is that a really fundamental starting block for um, making that shift? Is that mindset shift? Yeah, I think it's also too, though, and ownership is a big part of it. And I think that's kind of, um, I guess, been more of a trend, especially in, in cities. But also even things, just simple things, as Christina mentioned a little bit earlier too, like if you're going to purchase something, um, whether and it's appliance or something, are you looking at? Can you can you actually say exchange the exchange parts for that re replace parts for that appliance in 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 the long run, um, or do you have to once that appliance something happens to it, then you have to replace the whole thing? Can mm. you replace parts on it? Um, what is the packaging that that appliance or item that you're purchasing comes in? Is, so we need to look at things like things that don't have much packaging. Um, so, for instance, I'm looking at purchasing a new phone and I'm looking for the phone that I can actually replace the battery myself. I don't have to <laughs> unglue everything and order these special screw screwdrivers to get the little screws out that um, Apple may have put in so that I can't do that myself. A great example of a repairable phone is the Fairphone. Say hello to the new Fairphone. This is a phone that is built to last. It provides modular upgrades and service support. The company also uses fair, recycled, and responsibly mined minerals. Unfortunately for us Canadians, the Fairphone isn't officially available in Canada yet. When we are looking at purchasing just in terms of longevity, repairability, items like that too. 
mm, at the okay. individual level. Yeah. And I think too, I would say that, you know, we can put a we can put a lot of responsibility on the individual and they play such a key key role. But really this is this is starting to take society by storm. Like the individuals are basically gonna have to keep up. Because mm. and a lot of this is because of the electronic platforms that we have and the ability that we have to have these kind of systems. Things like Airbnb mm. that did not exist ten years ago, there's an example of a sharing economy. So Airbnb is part of a circular economy and there's equivalent models for all kinds of things, motorhomes, cars, bikes, like it, it's, it, there's no limit to the, the items that are covered under this model. And, and, and you can see how people have embraced, they're not thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't actually buy this. No, they're thinking this is super cool and I can get what I want and it's going to end up being way more efficient. It's going to cost me less. So I really think we're, almost automatically getting caught up in in the the societal development it's a paradigm shift is what it is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's it's uh it's you know as you describe it it certainly seems like there is uh you know folks always look for uh a simple answer so is it really the consumers that matter or the companies or whatever but it's it's a um solutions will be coming from all all sides. So with Airbnb, like that example and that story, they saw an opportunity and, and innovated um, to create. I think they have the most amount of uh, like essentially guest rooms in the world now um, yeah. over the hotel change. But then also um, at the individual level, once they start to see that, to apply that mindset, that paradigm uh, to demand different things from their companies uh, that are that are trying to, to service them as well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. One of the other things that's shifting too is just the idea of moving away from, like Lindsay was saying, do you actually need to buy something? When really what you need is you just need the service that that thing provides. So for can sure. you buy a service rather than buy a thing? And the less things we have sitting around, we're going to be for the, it'll be much more for the for the good. So, um, you know, service versus product, that's another big shift that's happening. Mm-hmm. Can, can you uh, give an example of uh, an industry or a company that has made that shift from product to service delivery? Yeah, for Ooh. sure. They're probably the best. The one I use all the time in presentations is uh, Philips, a lighting company. Mm-hmm. So traditionally, when you build, whether it's a house or an office building, you have to provide lighting within that building. And what has traditionally happened is you figure out how many lights you need and you buy all the lights, you have them installed. Well, what Philips is starting to do now, and this is more predominant in Europe, but it's coming here, is that you would not buy lights anymore in your new office building. You would just contract Philips to provide light for your building. Mm. And so then it, you don't have to know anything about lights. Philips comes and provides, or or the I don't need to give them an advantage, but they were kind of the leaders in this. So the lighting company would come and provide a certain number of lumens for each room to provide the service that you need. And that's all, basically it's, it's kind of like leasing. It, you have a contract for light then. And mm-hmm. so you would pay for the light as opposed to buying lights. That's a fundamental difference that makes a big change in terms of what the results are when those lights either need to be replaced or upgraded. It puts the onus back on those who really understand lights, which is the lighting company. 
Mm-hmm. And so at the end of so so three of my my pot lights burn out, then Philips or whoever the company would be would be responsible for um, then getting those back, replacing them, disposing of, dismantling those those ones that weren't working. Is that kind of the the sequence of events in yeah. that kind of model? Yeah, and I think the important part too about that sequence is when they first install those pot lights likely they are going to be the best kind of pot lights and the most efficient kind of pot lights that you can get because they don't want to be coming out and servicing those <laughs> pot lights every month. Right. Versus if I go to a store, I'm probably going to buy the cheapest pot lights. I thought I would get in touch with Marcus Lobsher, an old friend who works at Philips and is involved in their shift to a circular economy. We are very active in you know transforming our company to become a circular company. So we started to uh, focus on the topic of circular economy some six years ago to uh, understand what is the economic opportunity uh, of moving to a world where actually we uh, avoid uh, waste altogether. And, uh, and we found out that there was a significant uh, financial benefit next to, of course, the environmental benefits. And that triggered the company to really uh, install a, a center of competence on the topic. And what, uh, what we do as a team internally is really support the different Philips businesses in understanding what are the circular economy opportunities specifically for their business. Um, secondly, we are helping the overall organization to understand what actually circular economy means in, uh, in the case uh, you know, of, of Philips, uh, its products and services. Um, and we create the capabilities and the capacity within the organization to actually uh, translate the theory into practice. One way that Philips supports the circular economy is by training hardware and software designers to understand how they can create innovative and circular products and services. They also include as much recycled plastics as they can in new products. We work with our engineers to uh, figure out how can we integrate as much as possible recycled plastics when we make new appliances. Um, that means, for example, that uh, you know, we, we completely change designs of, say, coffee machines, where we make sure that uh, base plates, uh, internal parts are completely made out of uh, recycled plastics. Um, and where there is actually quite some engineering uh, to be done to make sure that these materials, which, which have some different characteristics than virgin plastics, uh, you know, go through the production process in a way you know, that, that remains uh, uh, effective and profitable, etc. It's exciting to learn that a global company like Philips is taking such a proactive approach to the circular economy and that they see a sound business case for it. Now, back to my conversation with Christina and Lindsay. What, what I find so interesting about any any discussion, uh, reading, etc., I do about the circular economy, it's it's when you dig into it, 99 times out of 100, it just makes complete sense, <laughs> which is one of the encouraging things about it in terms of this, the systems shift. So what, what are some of the things that um, in terms of kind of the... the 
at a, at another level beyond individuals and companies. So let's say cities, or it could be state, provincial jurisdictions, or national. Um, what are some of the most exciting activities that are happening um, that you see to make a shift towards a, a circular economy? Well, I guess there, and, and Europe seems to be leading the way, of course, yet again, where <laughs> North America is a little bit behind, makes me a little sad, but anyways, <laughs> Europe does have a number of, of great examples. So cities like London, Amsterdam, Glasgow, and usually the first the first item that they tackle is they design some type of route map for their municipality. And that basically they determine which initiatives or cross-cutting themes are going to be the most um, applicable for introducing more of a circular economy. So for instance, London, the city of London, some of their examples, they've decided to focus on um, food waste as one, uh, building environments, and that's that's a common one in terms of construction. And there's a, a lot of opportunities for imp- incorporating more of a circular economy because you can do design things that are modular in terms of buildings that get be put together and then actually deconstructed in a modular way and then used somewhere else. And cities can have kind of databases of where they have extra materials that are available or that are being stored. Um, So items like that. So that's just an initiative that, say, London has focused on. Hmm. Amsterdam actually has decided to focus more on the sharing uh, sharing platform. And um, they have put in a bunch of pilot programs about on sharing. So things like repair cafes, just community spaces where people can come in and teach another person to sew or how to repair something. Um, And the other big thing too that the European cities seem to recognize is that a lot of smaller startup companies are going to be a big element in the success of circular economy. So they've actually been um, supporting these startup companies through in terms of mentoring, education, as well as financial support. Um, so that's been a big focus for, say, like London and Amsterdam, that they are really any type of startup company, small business that has an idea, an innovative idea that is really along the lines of circular economy, that they kind of help that company grow. And so hopefully will become successful in their municipality and then ultimately encourage the whole city to become more circular. Hmm. That's and just a few examples of, I can, I think, more circular economy transitioning in, in municipalities in Europe. Yeah, and I think the, the thing I would add on the cities is that, because you, you probably are wondering, you know, with the different levels, why um, cities versus, you know, higher level government. And, and what seems to be recognized is that cities, because they have a lot less administrative burden, a lot less bureaucracy, tend to be a lot more nimble. So they're able, and and all of these examples we talked about with circular economy are tend to be both disruptive, but also very dependent on new technology. Mm-hmm. So they move very quickly. Yeah. It's, it's, and so it's, it's difficult for, especially national governments who are anything but nimble for them <laughs> to actually respond. Um, they can certainly figure out ways to encourage circular economy, but in terms of actually enacting it, it, it seems like the municipalities are the right level to do that because they have enough authority, but at the same time, they're nimble enough to actually do things. Mm. Yeah. Okay. 
And and the the support that uh, that you mentioned in terms of uh, small businesses and startups are those primarily kind of tech platforms um, for for supporting the circular economy. Do you find? A lot of them are, yes. Yeah, you'll see a lot of kind of tech platforms, but you'll also see some in terms of innovation and and in, for, in the forms of packaging, like compostable packaging. Mm. Um, what are some other examples? A, a lot of them, I think just because of where we're at in society too, does involve the tech component for sure. Um, and again, that kind of goes into how we're all so interconnected now that we can... I can announce when my Airbnb is available or when it's not right. and we're so, or when I'm using my car and, or when my neighbor is going to be using my car or when it's not, av- when it is available and things like that. So there is often a large tech component, but you do see some just in terms of innovative design in terms of product, whether it's packaging or just a, for instance, a phone that comes out that that is completely repairable you can take every part out and replace it so that it will last so much longer so companies like that too they Mm -hmm. are they often invest in as well okay cool um so one of the things uh you know we i've asked you to uh jump scales quite a quite a bit during our conversation but maybe if we could take it back to the kind of the individual level and the folks that might be listening uh to this podcast i think one of the things that that becomes challenging with um big picture issues like uh waste as as a, a great example of one uh is that folks don't even know where to start um, they kind of feel rudderless or helpless. And so if, if, if there are some of those folks that are, that are listening, what would be an action or some key actions that, that you could tell people um, that, that start to um, address the challenges of waste in our world? Um, what would be some of the, the suggestions that, that you might make to folks beyond kind of the, you know, make sure you recycle your pop can or bring your own mug? Yeah, I, I think it, it's, you know, we can keep it fairly simple. What it becomes overwhelming when it's too complicated, but mm-hmm. really the solution to waste is so much about following the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So it's about considering reduction first. That is, I mean, that's obviously over and above participating in programs, uh, you know, all of those things you can do as well. But when you're making decisions, especially purchasing decisions, that you think about how can I actually reduce the amount of material or amount of waste I'm going to produce? How do I do that? And that is a fairly um, recognizable activity for most people. They understand what reduction means. Yeah. We need to pay more attention to that. It's it's like recycling has become this environmental panacea <sighs> when we all we actually need to reduce first, and that's the message that unfortunately we've kind of forgotten. Mm. Mm. And I it's, it, it, I suppose that that very well could be that the um, um, the thing that you don't. Uh, consume uh, that you don't need to put waste uh, or recycling uh, out and those kinds of things like you never see it recycling is pretty easy because there's a tangible physical thing and there's a blue bin and all those kinds of things so it's kind of like this invisible Mm -hmm. thing that you don't even create it in the first place so it's harder to uh, put your arms around it so to speak yes yeah especially in terms of measurement as well it is harder to measure the fact that you just didn't buy that item Mm -hmm. versus I put it in the recycling. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. The blue card. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's uh, Lindsay. How about how about you? Do you have any uh, any thoughts about uh, suggestions you would give to to a listener that wants to do their part? Hmm. I do. Not to sound repetitive, it. I do really believe it is about reduction, and so much of what we have in our society today, we don't really need. Whether it's too many things, or you didn't even need that thing in the first place. Um, like single use items just blow my mind how we've created so many single use options when it's like why at other convenience sure but that's not a very valid argument for a lot of the things that we use now and that we we spend all this energy um taking the raw resources and manufacturing it into a product that we then use for five seconds or right. we only use once and then we throw it out and it goes into the landfill it just seems and and pretty much every single use item there is a very good alternative option mm-hmm. and i know that because we've been using it for the last hundred years <laughs> it's only <laughs> recently that we've created all this single single use material single use items and um so really just to think about that if if you do use singleized items is there what is the alternative and how can you make that shift to that that option instead mm-hmm. terrific yeah. okay that's that that's great and and um uh I, just as as you were you were talking about the the reduction piece, and then um, you know our, our conversation about the the issue of ownership and and how companies can shift their um, their approach. I I just was recalling a, a story that a, a former colleague told me that they they had bought. I think it actually was light bulbs at uh, at Home Depot, and it, you know that's one of many products that has you know the pack a huge amount of packaging. It's you know you almost need yeah. a pH to get into the package and those kinds of things <laughs> and uh and so what she's she's she did this once and she started to do it over and over again was she would dismantle it in front of the the teller and yes. then hand the material to them and say you deal with this i don't want to and just yeah. like as, as a really it's 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 a a little bit of a pain in the ass provocative action but it's mm-hmm. if everybody started doing that then i'm sure home depot would reconsider some of their packaging um yeah policies yeah. and, and their own purchasing and all that kind of stuff. So, um, mm-hmm. no, no shortage of, of creative ways to, uh, for folks to do their part in a 2014 walrus talk, Les Stroud and that guy survivor man called this method of removing packaging at the store. Part of the survivor man garbage challenge tonight. When you go home, do what you have to do with your garbage, get it all set up, move it out and everything. Then tomorrow take your garbage receptacles and hide them for one month. That's all I ask. One month. Hide your garbage receptacle and watch how fast you figure it out. Watch how quickly you're sitting there at Canadian Tire going, look, I just want the lighter. I don't need the bubble wrap and the cardboard. You keep it. Let's see what happens to, to the major box stores when we leave all of that behind. And they go, hey, listen, supplier, I got a problem here. And that, that one person that has done that... It, it does actually make a difference because the the teller, the person, the clerk person, I'm sure she told someone about that, that that, mm-hmm. that happens and that that message then gets passed along and then it gets passed along to the the the, the company that provides Home Depot with those lights and that actually designs the packaging. And it it makes a difference. And like you said, the more of us that do things like that, um, it, it does it does create change. 
for sure for sure the more the more that we can put the responsibility back on the producers of the products and the packaging the more likely we're going to have successful systems because they they have the most incentive not only to reduce the the wasteful packaging and the wasteful products but they also then are the only ones that are able to reincorporate those materials back into the system. So you can send a very strong message to producers by making them responsible for um, for actually good management of of their materials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. And and again, like I would, it, would, it all just makes a lot of sense. But just the way the economy has evolved over decades is uh, this is kind of um, new thinking and new information for a lot of folks. So um, I think the more that you know, hopefully there's some light bulbs that are going off for folks that are listening to this podcast, and we can keep that going. Um, so last question uh, for you both um, that we ask every every person uh, on the podcast. Uh, can you each tell me a city that you love and why you love it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> this would be difficult for Christina since she doesn't particularly love cities. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? Does it? It does. It have to be a Canadian city? Nope, not at all. Oh, interesting. Well, I have to say, I, interestingly. I was just in Helsinki at a circular economy conference, and I was really impressed with Helsinki. There are so many cool things there. They have the coolest library I've ever seen, and they have you know lots of very interesting architecture, and they're, they're such a, a friendly and supportive society. I was very impressed with Helsinki. So I think just because I was just there, I, I would say Helsinki. If I was going to say a Canadian city, um, honestly, it, it would be either probably Ottawa. I actually kind of like Ottawa. Yeah. <laughs> so my answer is not going to sound nearly as original now that Christina went first. <laughs> but <laughs> I think in terms of a city that I just really felt very comfortable in and really enjoyed, it will have to be Oslo, Norway. Mm. And for some of the similar reasons, just walking around, you feel you feel a sense of community. Um, they have amazing architecture in terms of modern architecture. I know you could have not not old stuff really, but um, they're they're like their um, their concert halls and just different things. It's it it was. But it's more about the feeling that you get there. It's mm. it's like they take care of their citizens and everyone seems very happy and healthy. Um, it was, we had very good weather, which was great too. <laughs> I know it doesn't always get the best weather, but um, it just seemed like a modern, vibrant city that everyone looks out for each other. Very cool. Talking with Christina and Lindsay really made me think about how my individual actions can help or hinder the efforts for waste reduction. We need change on all scales from the large multinationals and international agreements to federal, provincial, and municipal level efforts to reduce waste. But that individual action definitely makes an impact. As Christina mentioned during our chat, My dream would be that we would change our society so that it would be an embarrassment to walk down the street with a disposable coffee cup 
Mm. Or to take a plastic bag or any or a paper bag, a single-use bag in a retail store. Mm. If that was embarrassing for people to do, they wouldn't do it, and that would change things instantly. It might not be a complete embarrassment to use a single-use coffee cup yet, but hopefully we get there. I'm inspired by the circular economy initiatives occurring around the world, and I'm excited to see how these initiatives, from local and community-based to global projects, continue to grow. If you know of an initiative that's helping reduce waste, let us know on social media. We'd love to learn more. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.